You're listening to Extra Takes, hosted by Northland Church lead pastor, Dr. Joshua Laxton. Tune in each week as Pastor Josh reveals the rest of the story behind his sermons. We'll discuss how those who follow Christ can live out a biblical vision for the church in the world today. Well, hello, Northland family and friends. Welcome to another episode of Extra Takes. I am your co-host, PJ, along with my other co-host, Matt Shiles. Matt, great to see you and be with you today. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited for today. I think you are ready for... We're going to have a marathon episode. Is that what's going to happen? That's what I think. We'll see. So if you don't like long podcasts, you might want to start clicking up your, I guess, the rate of which you listen to, like a 1.25, one and a half. Yeah. Don't do two because you probably <laughs> won't be able to understand me, but at least me, because I already talk fast as it is. Yeah. But no, there's a, probably a lot to talk about, given the fact that as we introduced our series, TED, Theological Educational Discourses, here, the whole point is to give you a 30,000, 50,000 foot view, more of kind of a framework, and then yeah. to give us resources if you wanted to learn more about yeah. it, yeah. you definitely could, and one of the resources being Extra Takes. Yeah, and what will be great about today and future conversations is this is an extra resource and then this we will then point you to additional resources and I think it just um, continues to reiterate there is um, there is a, a depth here that if you're willing to explore um, you know God will meet you in it he will yeah. meet you in your questions and and he will honor um, your studying and and we would love to come alongside you in that yeah. Um, so yeah, so this is the first week of our TED series. This is Theological Educational Discourses. And the, the idea is, like TED Talks, have these these short talks, right? <laughs> I'm laughing because, yeah, short, short talks. Like uh, Now, on the second talk, I hit my time. Like you the did. second one yeah. about about God, I, you, you know, and if I had to go, if I had to do it over again, I would have I would have did a like a a really a, a 10 15 minute introduction mm-hmm. to set everything up even including a lot of the things that I laid the the groundwork for with regards to the word because for for me yes the word is vital because it really does drive everything mm-hmm. and so for 2000 years what has been passed down to us mm. has been the word of God which is given us understanding in all of these primary doctrines. So I felt like, mm. you know, maybe it would have been best to kind of set up why word is so important and then here's what we believe about the Bible. Sure. Because I would have hit my time if I would have just spent, here's what we believe about the Bible. And and part of that would be, well, why do we believe the Bible is re- reliable and all that? But uh, mm. so I live and I learn. But yes, there, there was a lot to cover, particularly for the first quote unquote talk this past weekend. So yeah, and this was July 1st and 2nd in this entire month. Um, we're going to be in this series. And uh, and I, as I look at the outline, just just considering the outline, it was it was a packed week with so much good information, and that's why today's going to be such a good conversation. Um, really, you started with a series introduction. In, in a couple points, you talked about why this series. Um, you talked about what is theology, um, why does theology matter, 
Uh, we talked about the difference between theology and doctrine. Mm. And then, um, and then, yeah, that was just the introduction. <laughs> we then got into the Word and Revelation, so scriptures, and then God and the Trinity. So I want to spend a little bit of time hitting each of those three because I do think there's some some good conversation to be had in um, in just the the high level discussion of um, theology. Why does it matter? Why would we even? do a series like this. So the first question I have to kind of get us started is you said good theology is to be applied theology. So it just got me thinking and it kind of begs the question, so what happens when theology isn't applied? Well, when theology isn't applied and it basically becomes static, Mm -hmm. it typically becomes irrelevant. Mm. See, whatever we practically do with our lives... Mm -hmm. Uh, that's 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 an engagement part of okay we're, we're living our lives it, it's practically applied like so for instance like I think one of the reasons why I'm not a really good handyman I never really understood it mm-hmm. you know so I never really had some you know one I never had this even passion to even learn so that that's a that's a whole other thing like if you have a passion to know the Lord. Yeah then I would hope that you would have a passion for theology and doctrines, mm-hmm. right? So, Because I think part of it is you need to be passionate about it. Yeah. But then if I'm passionate about it, like let's uh, – you know, so maybe aside from being a handyman, let's let's take the game of golf. Like if you're – I'm passionate about the game of golf, but if I don't know the fundamentals and the mechanics mm-hmm. – and a teacher has not taught me how I could practice those mechanics and those fundamentals on my own and and translate that out into the course, and I just go out and I continue to play bad golf and I don't know where the ball's going, don't know what I'm going, don't know what I'm doing, I'm probably not going to play as much golf. Sure. So if I don't really understand theology, if I don't understand kind of doctrines, and more specifically, not just not just the cognate, you know, cognizant understanding of it, but how it actually is supposed to be applied to my life mm-hmm. and how it's supposed to make me more like Jesus, then then I don't use it. And it, so if I don't use it, yeah. then I probably lose it. And it really is like muscles. Like I'm learning a lot about strength training right now. Mm. And so if I don't exercise my muscles, if I don't do strength training, then my, then my muscles weaken. And so I think that's part of it of, you know, if we don't apply it, we actually lose it. Mm. And could it be the, the reason why many people fall away from the faith or, you know, their faith isn't as meaningful in their life is because at some point maybe they either stopped or they have they weren't part of a church where they were taught how to put their faith in practice because that's what theology and doctrines ultimately are, are, are doing. Yes, they yeah. give you the framework. This is what we believe, yeah. but this is why it matters, yeah. and, and this is what it leads to. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not a, just about knowledge; it's about yeah. right living. And um, and I would kind of bring up the question: if if we never apply it, did we ever really understand it? it well, yeah, did did, did you? And um, I, there, we'll do a series in the fall called Iron Faith. I'm going to start out with Matthew 13 and the parable of the sower. And yes, there's a lot of people that they just kind of, you know, uh, fall fall away. Hmm. And I think maybe one of the reasons why they fall away is because they they didn't really have that understanding and true understanding that they could apply. Like, so for instance, there is a difference in, 
I got this from J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. But there is a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Mm. Like, so even doctrine and theology, they can teach you about God, but hopefully what they're doing is not only teaching you about God, but how you can actually know God. And, and and that is that there there lies a more of a, a kind of a, a cerebral kind of no I, I know of you, you know towards a practical I know him mm-hmm. you, you know so like so my wife I know her I don't just you know I, yeah I know things about her yeah. but because I know things about her I can actually then know her mm-hmm. like so for instance I know that she loves Garth Brooks. Mm. Like she grew like just grew up and then I think when she lived in Alabama and went to school, she loves Garth Brooks. And so I I know that about her. Well, so part of now knowing her is for her birthday. Mm. Uh and I did tell her and it's also for Christmas, so you get your Christmas present in in, in June. I was I bought her Garth Brooks tickets. Oh, yeah. So so now I knew something about her. Yeah. But because I I love her and I want to know her. Yeah. I did. It was a practical thing, right? So that that hopefully maybe that gives even a, a, another just way is like we want to know things about God. That like that's part of it. Yeah. But then it's to translate. Okay, if I know that He is a God who has created for His own glory, and and I'm I'm a created being that he that again has been created by him. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to give give him significance and weight and thus glory or glorify him, how do I do that? I better have a re, I better have ways yeah. that I've articulated even as a pastor to people of how you glorify God. Mm-hmm. So we know about him, yeah. But now this is knowing him of how we glorify him. That's great. Yeah, yeah. to know God is to experience him. Yep. Um, and we'll get to this in the Trinity, but he is a relationship. So without um, truly experiencing him, I'm not sure we can we can know him. And and with your um, with your analogy of Garth Brooks, I I can imagine that you then going and having that experience with Joni at the concert, you will get to know her better because of yeah. the way she's going to absolutely experience Garth Brooks differently than you would. Listening to yeah, a CD and it was album. an act. It was an act of love. Mm. It was an act of sacrifice because mm. I knew about, mm. but I did something about it, sure. right? Yeah. So, yeah. so maybe that's a way. If you want to move from knowing about yeah. to actually engaging, you, you know, do something about it. Yeah, right. So just don't know about it. Do something about it. And and hopefully through this um, through this series, we can demystify a bit of. I think uh, theology and doctrine can hold um, maybe a barrier for some, and, um, and and really what I hear you saying is, um, in order for us to truly go deep and understand God well, we have to really dig into not just not just reading the Bible, and we'll get into that too, reading versus studying, but um, but really putting it into practice, and um, that's where. That's where the rubber meets the road of our faith. It doesn't have to be um, this huge, big, scary thing, but it is. It is necessary. Um, what's great about this is 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 seeing you know and knowing our congregation. For many, many, many in our congregation, this is 
this is a refresher. Yeah. Right. But for many, we also we also know that like wherever you are, right? If you're intimidated by um, theological doctrines, you know, the big words like just take a step, right? Where, where... Uh, well, like, yeah, what you know, a big word like systematic theology, yep. a big, yep. you know, a big word like amillennialism, a yep. big word. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like, yeah, like, uh, yeah. and and that's and that's that is kind of a challenge. I was talking to a couple earlier, and you know, just was telling them that. As a as a pastor coming in and knowing that man, there are people all over the map. Yeah. Like, am I even doing justice to be able to communicate the the, the these pretty lofty mm. kind of theology mm. doctrines and, and, and trying to put them on a shelf that is accessible? Yeah. Uh, because there, there's always that challenge. Like again, because I do believe that good theology is applied theology. And maybe even for those who this is a refresher, it might be the first time they've actually heard these things, like put in the way we were doing them. So, so hopefully at the end of the day, after July is over, people will look back and go, "Man, this was a really good series. It was a good refresher. Man, I learned some new things." Like I was telling a guy, like a guy came up to me and, "Oh gosh, I really forget the question, but." But he, you know, he's like, what? Wasn't there like a period of silence, you know, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, or something like that? And I'm like, there was, and there's actually a reason for. There's actually a theological reason for that. Now, I will say though, between Malachi, that's the last book of the Old Testament, and the the first book of of the Gospels is Matthew. But scholars would say that Mark was the first one written in terms of his gospel, but. But from the moment of Malachi, when it you know when it was written to Jesus coming on the scene, there, there was four hundred years really of silence. But you do have some books that were written during this time that were considered like apocryphal books. So you have like First and Second Maccabees. Now, one of um, you know one of the I'd say articles that I actually came across was what is the Apocrypha, and, and just just listen to uh, the, the summary of the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha is a collection of books written in the four centuries between the Old and New Testaments. Though the Apocrypha is not scripture, uh, many Protestants uh, in, in Protestant history, because where, where did Protestantism come from? Well, there was, there was a group of reformers uh, people like John Calvin, Martin Luther, that broke away, ultimately broke away from the Catholic Church. So that's where Protestantism came from. So though the Apocrypha is not scripture, many Protestants have found the collection useful historically, theologically, and spiritually. Mm. And so so they were written during this time, but they're, but they're more historical, yes, theological, but they're not divinely inspired. Yeah. As Now, again, some people would say they're divinely inspired. Uh, we're not going to say that, but are they useful? Absolutely. But why this silence between Malachi and Jesus coming on the scene? Because there's four centuries. Mm-hmm. So do the math. How many is four centuries? 400 years. Yeah. Do you know how long the period of silence was between Joseph, so Jacob and Joseph, mm-hmm. at the end of Genesis 
to the Exodus, do you know how many centuries and how many years have passed? Mm-mm. 400. Mm. So, so 400 years pass between the last time you see God engaging with his people, Jacob and Joseph, because mm. uh, Jacob, uh, you know, he's the father of Joseph, but he's going to move his entire family there in Egypt. And over a period of four centuries, there's going to come on the scene a Pharaoh who did not remember Joseph and Jacob. And so he's going to start becoming extremely oppressive to now these Hebrews that are now in in his land. And so slavery and all that. And so God's going to raise up, he's going to raise up Moses to be the deliverer mm. so that he might save his people from the hand of the Egyptians. Okay. Mm. So again, 400 years. And also another reason why we know that is that in Genesis 15, we're going to see that God says, you, you, you know, um, uh, the amount of years they're going to have to pass uh, before the sin of the Amorites are are complete. And I, re- I referred to that passage a few, you know, few messages ago. Mm-hmm. So when you look at Malachi ending in the Old Testament to the time that Jesus comes on the scene, four centuries. So four, so Jesus is the better Moses. Now mm. he's coming to institute a new covenant. So, and when I was telling that to the guy, he's like, oh my gosh, I just learned, you know, it was like, but, but so there, there's a reason for that. Yeah. So That's anyways, awesome. I don't know where I was going with that, but again, I even gave some extra information about the Apocrypha. So yeah, Fun you were, stuff. Yeah, you were talking about the Apocrypha and, and why it might be. Yeah. So it gives us some yeah. historical information of what yeah. was going on during that that period of, of silence. Yeah. So that's great. So you you also talked about uh, triaging doctrines. So can you talk about the difference primary, secondary, tertiary, and um, and really why? Um, I mean, we could we could get into a lot here. But um, you know how how Christians have gotten in trouble, maybe mislabeling some of these, and why it's so important for us to yeah. agree on kind of where um, where each of those go, which buckets each yeah. of those go in. So, so I mean, think of, think about this. Like, so when you're looking for a spouse, mm-hmm. there, there's some key. Things that you're probably looking for. Some now, non-negotiables. I, some non-negotiables, right? Because yeah. if these are not met, yeah. then that marriage may not last, yeah. right? Yeah. But there, there, obviously there are some secondary and tertiary things like, you know, sure. you, you know, what are their little mannerisms or, you know, do they slurp when they when they eat their cereal or not? Like, it, it, yeah. you know, because yeah. I would say, you know, slurping your cereal is probably not a prom is, is pro- probably not a primary thing. It's not, not it's yeah. a it's probably not a non-negotiable. Yeah, okay. Do they, do they eat pineapple on their pizza? I mean, like, yeah, I mean, yes. So all of those things. So when you're when you figure out what those non-negotiables are, yeah. you know that your your relationship has the has a better chance of making it going the distance, right? Yeah. So when you look at these primary, secondary, and tertiary doctrines, it really is more about alignment mm. and yeah. more about r- relating to one another. Because if you be, because these primary, these fundamental, these non-negotiables, we're going to teach that everything that we teach is really going to fit under these non-negotiables. So if you don't agree with us, 
you know, if you don't agree with where we are doctrinally on these, pri- what we're saying, these are primary non-negotiable issues. You will probably constantly find yourself wanting to email, or can you explain this again? I don't, you know, or you might find yourself mad and upset, and so therefore it might not be a good fit. Now, but what I would say is that when you look at these you know, these non-negotiable, these primary, for 2,000 years of church history, the church pretty much has held these. Now, uh, has, has, some, has some major you, you know, denominations, have they gone a different way in, in some of these? Yeah, which is why they broke off, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, so... That's where I would say what what we're really looking at in terms of teaching our our doctrines is this is what we hold. Uh, we're not changing. We haven't changed in 50 years. We don't plan on changing in these primary doctrines. Mm-hmm. These secondary doctrines, uh, because we are a non-denominational church, yeah. and we have we have people from Baptist backgrounds, Assembly God backgrounds. Presbyterian, Lutheran, Methodist, like we, we do, we, we want to be a larger tent uh, for for people to be able to be unified under these primary doctrines. So therefore, we might find some differing of of theological or doctrine, doctrinal stances mm-hmm. on that secondary list that I, I pointed out. So, you know, some people might come from a congregational ruled church where they voted on everything. Yeah. Well, we're not that, but that we but we understand that is a secondary issue, but can you respect where we are and 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 fellowship with us, right? Yeah. I had somebody ask me about about the communion uh time yesterday like because again, we're we're a non-denominational church. We'd like to try to vary the. I mean, we would like to we like to try to vary how we do it throughout the year, mm-hmm. you know. Because other people, you know, if they grew up Methodist, they may do it this way. If they grew up Baptist, they may do it this way. Yeah. And so we do it. We, we do it in terms of a practice. Mm-hmm. Maybe you know, like a, you know, specific, you know, we might have these little cups, or sometimes we might have bread that you come over and like. So we we do it in a different way, but it's the same purpose of why communion exists mm. to remember what mm. what Jesus did, and so it's a memorial thing. There's not a mystical thing about communion. Like there are some people that would say, you know, transubstantiation that it that it turns into the physical body and blood of Jesus. We, like we we don't hold that. But again, this is a secondary doctrine, so uh, it should not disrupt fellowship as much, right? And then you have your tertiary, which those are just preferential. Yeah, yeah, I think it's helpful to hear the you know the secondary is things that we need to agree to disagree on, and then the tertiary is preferential. Yeah, For, and, and what but what happens though sometimes, and this is where in church history, and it's and what's fascinating when you look at church history. I mean, up into the Refor- Reformation, there was like one church. Mm-hmm. It was the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And then now, but it wasn't the case. So uh, beyond, you know, beyond what some people would say, um, you, you know, Peter was not the first pope. So I'm just going to go out and say that. But, you know, um, 
what you have in the first three centuries, though, it was not the so the Catholic Church didn't come until later on. So, but for uh, all, all, a little maybe a thousand, a little over a thousand years, you had the Catholic Church. Then the uh, Protestant Reformation is going to happen around the kind of the 1500s, so 14, 1500s, uh, with the rise of the these Catholics that started to challenge the abuses to the Catholic Church. And they wanted to reform the Catholic Church. That's why they're called reformers. They didn't want to break off from the church because they really saw the health and the vitality of a unified church. Mm. Well, they end up breaking off from the Catholic Church, and now you have the Protestant Church. But what you have from 1500, you know, from kind of really from the 1500s to really around the 1700s, so 16, 1700s. And you have people now migrating over to this new world, this new land, right? In America, like what well, wasn't America yet? So you have these colonies in the 1700s, and but they wanted freedom. They wanted religious freedom. So what you have, and this is fascinating. I, I do a, I actually do a seminar, or I have done a seminar on just the branches of denominations. And it's fascinating how how the American kind of or British colonies and then American, you know, kind of or I say British colonies, British American colonies, and then when we even became a nation, how our our environment, our free individualistic environment gave rise to now this myriad hmm. of denominations. I say all of to say, well, wh- why did we split so much? Because we split over secondary and even tertiary doctrines, mm. um, and so, I, so I just have a, a, a you know a, a, a big soft spot in my heart that not not that we're ever going to fully agree on everything, yeah. but I I want us to really major on the on the majors and really minor on the minors. Uh, for the sake of the unity of the body of of the church, yeah, and and really with the secondary and, and tertiary, um, where there has been some some clash along the years here is that you know there's been this um, there hasn't been this agreement with what falls in secondary and tertiary. It's right. it's wanting to put it in a yeah. primary, right? Yeah. And that's where you have these denominational splits. They are making what we will call secondary and tertiary issues primary. Yeah. And then they are yeah. they are breaking fellowships. Well, yeah. So, and, so and for this to work here, we have to agree we don't have to we have to agree to disagree, but we have to agree that they're in those buckets. They're in those buckets. And yeah. and just just so that you know, like I just gave a very, very high level view of, of church history. So even in Protestantism, yeah. there there was you know fragmenting even happening there. Like you have, if you wanted to Google the Anabaptists, I mean that they were part of the you know kind of the the Protestant well, movement. Yeah. And so, but you had John Calvin, he, he would actually persecute Anabaptists. So I mean, again, I, I gave a very high level view, but it really wasn't until. Uh, really, the mid seventeen uh, hundreds, late seventeen hundreds, where you really started to see a lot of these denominations morph into uh, and, and break into even subsets yeah. uh, of these, uh, yeah, yeah, of these Protestant movements. Yeah. But then before that, you had theological battles between Catholics and the Orthodox Church, 
Um, so you see that you do. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah. So because yeah, you have them. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> so we. It's very fascinating history. You know, when I I took theology one and theology two, so they split it. You know, these these primary doctrines into two semesters, so essentially thirty weeks um, of this. And and yeah, it's it's very easy to to say, hey, why would why would the church care so much about this, or why would there be these denominations? And as you start digging into the doctrines, um, it really in the nuances of it, it helps to illuminate. Okay, this is where they see it. This is where they see it. And there's this this yeah, you know yeah. division there. Um, the beauty of the non-denominational church is we are saying, hey, we really, really, really only want to major on the majors. Yeah, yeah. And which that doesn't mean that we don't have positions on secondary doctrines because Northland, we do. Yeah. We do have positions on that. But what we have really tried to do is focus more on the primary doctrines than the secondary doctrines. Now, I will say this, like if the if we don't hold to your secondary doctrine and it's and it's a really important doctrine for you you might want to go find that denomination that practices that if it's that important to you and and i i and here's you're not going to hurt my feelings you're not going to hurt our like i understand we that's why we are not in competition i keep telling people we are not in competition with churches in the orlando metro area is that in in somehow in god's sovereignty he has allowed this to happen and so but we we are ultimately on the same team if we agree that yeah. that we are basically at the end of the day we really are on the same team if you believe that we we serve one god three persons yeah if you believe that humanity is sinful and broken and is in desperate need of being saved and the only way that we can be saved is through King Jesus and his death and resurrection. Mm. Like that 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 really is cuz somebody had said to they and I want to clarify this. Somebody came up to me and they said, "So are you saying that we have to believe all of these primary doctrines to be saved?" And I'm like, "No, I don't know where you got that from. Mm. Like you know, th- these are the primary doctrines that we hold, but I I stress that the only way we are saved mm. is through Jesus." And I even said like even the Bible is not salvific in the sense that the Bible can save you. The Bible points to who saves you, and the Bible is going to point to Jesus. And so so I just want people to, again, like, you don't have to hold these primary doctrines in order to be saved. But according to uh, the Bible, though, if you want to be saved, you need to trust Jesus. You, You need to repent. Yeah. Which is a change of mind. You need to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. So you need to repent of your sin, and you need to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. So, so that is the only when I say doctrine that points to salvation. Because I even say this: the doctrine tells you how to get saved, but the doctrine doesn't save you. Yeah, like does that make sense? Like it, it it does. Jesus saves you, but when you are saved, then you will. Hold to these. Well, well, I, here's what I would say because I, I, I'm not going. I'm not even willing to to even say that when I think about gender and sexuality or marriage and family. Like, 
what and the reason why we have elevated those to primary, and I'll go ahead and leak it right now. The reason why we've elevated those primary because we believe that throughout church history, not even just church history, even when you span all the way back to Jewish history and the Old Testament. Mm. Like that's there, mm. and so if we're going to if if we're going to start kind of maneuvering and doing some you know when I say theological and biblical hermeneutical gymnastics today, mm-hmm. and, and, and in some sense say oh it's okay if you do this then where else are you going to do some biblical and scriptural hermeneutical gymnastics? Mm. Uh, we've seen that in history is that when you start when you start messing with what scripture actually says to in some sense to accommodate. Yeah. Where the culture is, you're going to lose Jesus. So that's the reason why we we have put those into the the primary camp. Now, again, what we're looking at though is that this is this is what it means, and because obviously a primary doctrine is the doctrine of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Primary doctrine of what we believe about humanity, which we'll get at this weekend, and what we believe about how how humanity is saved. Okay, so. And then the the other primary doctrines really do follow more of a okay. This is how this is how it's enacted. So this is what we believe about the church. This is why the church really is important. This is why Christian discipleship is important. This is even why eschatology or the last things mm-hmm. is important because they do give shape and formation to how we live based upon the the uh, the first. Uh, primary doctrines that we went over. Does that make sense? So maybe you can even think about it like in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, the first half dealt with your your vertical relationship with the Lord. The the latter half of the Ten Commandments dealt with your horizontal relationship with others. So so you can think about it that way. But I want to be very. I, I do just want to make sure I'm very very clear on this. There's only one thing that saves you. And that is that is you repenting of your sin and confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and King, which then does transform you, because He gives you a new nature. He you know He He imputes His Spirit within you, and now the Holy Spirit's going to guide you, instruct you, and so we do believe that when you are instructed and led by the Holy Spirit. You're going to have these thoughts on the church. You're going to have these thoughts on Christian discipleship. You're going to have these thoughts on marriage and family, gender and sexuality. Like so, we do believe that. But but you don't. You're not going to be saved because you believe this. You know, like you're going to believe right about the church or about like like we, again. We we believe that you through the imputed Spirit of God in you, and the, well, I say the indwelling Spirit of God in you. you He's he's going to give you this understanding. Yeah, and and honestly, as you were talking, what always stood out to me while I was doing my um, theology studies is how each of them, you know, I, w- I would study one of the doctrines and say, oh, this is foundational, and then you study the next one, oh, this is foundational, and and every single one of them are just kind of so complementary and dependent on one another. Yeah. Even just in your explanation, you were you were talking about the importance of Scripture. You were talking about the importance of, of the Trinity. You were talking about the infor- importance of understanding humanity in the fall and salvation. 
they're all intertwined. Which goes back to the illustration of what we're trying to use in this series of God's living room, God's house. Yeah. When you're a part of God's house, these things are extremely clear. Yeah. And that's where we're saying, mm. you, you know, if you hold something that is different and it's a primary belief, again, it, you, you know, it's a primary belief that, that we have, but it's a different belief than what we hold, then you might not be as comfortable in this house we called Northland. Yeah. Does that make sense? It, it yeah. does. Even just considering scripture, right? We In this day and age, it, it, it can be very easy to see a challenging scripture and say, well, right, to to try to dismiss it or to, well, it didn't really, you know, twist there, it didn't really mean it. But what does it mean for us to fully believe um, the inspired and errant word of God, Yeah, right? To really sit in that, then what are the implications? Yeah, yeah and uh, yes, I mean, there's, yeah, so, well, But that's absolutely. why it's so important to lay that foundation because then that has implications on marriage and family, it, gender and sexuality, Humanity in the fall. Like, if that crumbles, right? If yeah. truly, like, every single week we're going to say, this is really, really important, right? But, like, yeah. if we can't trust, right, the authority of Scripture, it crumbles. So, well, that, yeah, that that's huge. And I'm telling you, the, the Scriptures have always been under scrutiny, Mm. That's all they've they've always been under scrutiny. I mean, because when when you had the Roman Empire persecute, one of the things that they were trying to do is get rid of scripture, which is where pseudepigraphus came in. You know, like the Gospel of Thomas, they they would they they, they would kind of you know write a a false so that when they came in, here you go, you can have the Gospel of Thomas. I mean, that was just one 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 of the things. But uh, so they because they know that if we can get rid of the authority. Right. That drives, right? I mean, and so, uh, and then when you look at, when you look at um, the, when I say post-modernity mm-hmm. era, yeah. uh, where you have really the, the 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 rise of science, and you know, eventually, the, the scriptures uh, came under attack again. Well, you know, and so scrutiny. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it couldn't Let's, have meant that. Yeah, yeah. And then with yeah. you know the nineteenth, twentieth century, it really affect us. You know, it really did affect some some major denominations here mm. because they actually lost the authority of God's word. Like they chose, you know, hey, well, it's a bit more of an inspirational book, not an inspire. It's not inerrant. It's not like. So it's really not God's word, and so. But when you lose, when you lose authority, when you lose your, and that's where I'm saying, yeah. like that that example that I I started off with in the first talk is that you can look at your current state, and you mm. can actually reverse and engineer, it and I can point to what your source of authority is. Mm. That if it if it's chaotic, if it's messy, if it doesn't make sense, if it's inconsistent. You, you know, um, if your life's all over the map, like yeah. then then your source of authority is all over the map. Yeah. But as Christians, if our source of authority is God mm-hmm. and His Word, here's what we know of Scripture of what His Word does. So if that is what His Word does, and so He and His Word is your source of authority in life of how you live, move, and have your being then your life is going to be more reflective of him being your source of authority. Hmm. So as we're talking about the um, 
the scriptures and specifically the reliability of the Bible. Um, you had said um, what one of the one of the proofs for the reliability of the Bible is the scripture says so. So let's talk a little bit about this. It it sounds like a circular argument. It says it's reliable, so it's reliable. So um, so talk more about this. Why why can we um, you know, why is that so important that the scripture actually tells us it's reliable? And maybe how does this differ from some other uh, religious text? Yeah. Well, the, the first one in terms of what makes it different than, say, the Quran mm-hmm. or the Book of Mormon, just ask yourself, well, how many authors wrote the Book of Quran and wrote the Book of Mormon? Yeah. So you have Muhammad singular author of the Quran, and he says this is what happened. Anybody else? Can anybody else corroborate that? Nope. Joseph Smith, you know, goes up on a mountain, says, man, this is is what happened. Can anybody corroborate that? Nope. But when you look at the Bible, it's 66 books, uh, and how many authors? Uh, 40 authors over a span of 1,500 years on three continents, we have now multiple witnesses. So, like, just from a just from a legal standpoint, like, so if 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 I was you know in a legal battle and we we're going to bring in witnesses, mm-hmm. um, and if we we're really going to establish the credibility of this person's story, but all you had to go on was this person's story and no other witnesses. Mm-hmm. Then you you really do not have a credible witness because all you have is one. Like I was actually listening to uh, another um, another guy talk about the the reliability of scripture, and he's actually a cold case uh, forensic expert. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he was talking about is that you actually want varying witness testimonies hmm. because a witness. You know, um, uh, every witness is 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 going to see things differently yeah. from a different perspective, and so when you have you know multiple witnesses, you can actually construct what really happened. And so when you have just when you, when you have these you know these these divine or you know so called divinely inspired books mm. that only have one author. Like, I, I, how do we know? Because no one else is corroborating that, mm. even from their perspective. Mm. But the Bible, and this is what's so amazing, it really is one overarching story that you can divide it into four major sections, creation, fall, what, what, you know, so what, what, what happened at the very beginning or where did it all come from? Yeah. What all went wrong? Yeah. That's fall. Yeah. What's What's being done about it, that's redemption. And so you have, again, from Genesis 3.15 all the way through, basically the book of Revelation, all the way up until basically Revelation you know, 20, uh, 21, 22. Uh, but, but between Genesis 3.15 and that, you have redemption, and then you have restoration. Now, some of the Old Testament books actually point to this eschatological, this future picture when everything will be made new. Yeah. 
So it's forecasting that, but it's creation, fall, redemption, restoration, one overarching meta narrative of 40 authors writing in a span of 1,500 years. Uh, so from Moses, uh, who wrote the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then to John writing the book of Revelation somewhere around AD 80, 90. You have about 1,500 years, give or take. And, and so that's why we can really, you know, that's just one of the reasons why we can trust the Bible versus some other, quote, quote, unquote, divinely inspired books. But but here's some, uh, you know, some other things like just, just from the Old Testament, archaeological digs and information that we have uh, uncovered um, over uh, the last century you know, actually corroborate the historical accuracy of the Old Testament. Mm. And I could give even some examples uh, uh, about that. Uh, But again, some of these resources will point you to that. But also at the time of Jesus, you had all of the religious leaders that even though they differed on the interpretation, Mm. they did not disagree on the actual Torah, Mm. that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they... Those those five books, they they ordered their life. Like so they're the one, you know, so they're the ones that really guided the Jews, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have Peter, he considered Paul's letters to be scripture. Mm-hmm. So Peter writes in Second Peter, and count the patience of our Lord a salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do with other scriptures. So Peter is even looking at what Paul's writing going, they're scriptures. They are inspired and some of the uh, you know, ignorant and unstable. They actually try to twist his words. Hmm. And um, then the writer of the book of Revelation, John, he makes an express claim to divine inspiration. He says at the beginning of his book, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it for the time is near. Uh, so, so John actually commands the reading of this book out loud and keep. You better keep what is written mm. in it. Mm. And, and, and so, so he's saying something has happened, you, you know, like again, and it's not me. So the, the Spirit of God has come upon me to, to write this. So, so this, is, this is prophecy. So so you do have even again other parts of scripture claiming to be divinely inspired. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's so helpful because we because it is 66 books, it is one meta narrative and even in in that question we can just assume since, since there's a cohesiveness then there's this circular argument because it's um it's proving itself but but really, when we see the diversity of authors, the the uh, the length of time, um, the amount of of books, um, we we just see the the amazing cohesive yeah. nature yeah. of of the scriptures. And um, 
And and here here's another one. And I actually, I, you know, I was going to – well, I, I knew I probably wasn't going to have time. But, so I was like, hey, extra takes. But Ephesians 2, so it's an epistle written by Paul – to the church at Ephesus, here's what he here's what he writes in the latter part of chapter two and then into chapter three. He talks about that you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household. So he's talking to Gentiles mm-hmm. because Gentiles they were not included in uh, you know God's household in the Old Testament. Now there's there's this foreshadowing through Abraham that all the families of the earth we're going to be blessed through Abraham's descendants. But what Paul is saying, this is this is the the beauty of the gospel, right? Is in the gospel that Jesus, he is the cosmic king who has come to make all things new through his death and resurrection. So any any nation, any any people group, any ethnic group outside of the nation of Israel, now if they trust Jesus as king, they are no longer foreigners or strangers, but they are citizens with God's people and members of his household. Now built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as, as the chief cornerstone. So what is it talking about? So so God had, had again, uh, he had given this this special calling to the apostles to really lay the foundation but the but the cornerstone the the primary part of the foundation is Jesus Christ so so Paul is saying that the foundation of the apostles and how how well through their ministry and through their writing Okay, so with, with Christ as as the chief cornerstone in Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in Him you are, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. There's so many again. There's so many connections here to the, even the Old Testament because in the Old Testament God inhabited the tabernacle and eventually the temple. Now what? Paul is saying uh, through what what Jesus is doing with his apostles and prophets. Because again, what you even have John saying is like, man, this is prophecy, right? So what what you have through that is now laying the groundwork really now for this new covenant where now the spirit of God, the presence, the glory of God now dwells in his church. Not, Not a tabernacle, not a physical temple, but a physical body comprised of people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people group. And then Paul's going to say this in chapter 3. He's he's going to actually say that in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. And this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So what he's saying is that now what I'm writing to you actually gives you insight into what God is doing. So, I mean, again, he's pointing to the importance, this this divinely important message that God has given him to make this mystery known. So it, it it's so important. Be, yeah, yeah. That's remarkable. Um, so we talked about the reliability 
of the Bible. And, and with that, you talked, why don't people trust the Bible? You gave some questions and, and you gave some answers. So I'm just going to throw that out to you. Do you have any additional thoughts um, around that, the questions and answers of uh, – the trustworthiness. Yeah, oh, like I'll give you, you know, an example because I listen to actually a lot of YouTube videos of people who says you can't trust the Bible. Yeah. So I actually went to the sources of people who's like you can't trust the Bible. Yeah. And one of the reasons why, well, one person said they couldn't trust the Bible is because Paul quoted from people who didn't write the Bible. Like so, so for instance, in Acts 17, Paul quotes secular poets. Yeah. And so he's like, well, so so if Paul's going to quote people that were not even part of God's people, uh, like what? And I'm like, well, I, you know, that that's fascinating. That's a, kind of a fascinating argument. But he's he's quoting them to use them as an example of being able to communicate the gospel to a particular context. So so is so that so it just showed me once again, like if you try. To read the Bible, just like any other book, I mean, sure, you're, you're going to be able to deconstruct that. You know, you're going to be able to deconstruct the book. Like, so for instance, um, some people don't trust the Bible because it's not, you know, because it's not scientific. It never claims to be scientific. That's why one of the things that when you're reading a book, the only way that you can really judge that book is by its thesis of what it's going to do. Hmm. So the Bible never claims to be a scientific book. And so, you know, when when you have people that that want to say the Bible's not reliable because it's it's not scientific, it never claims to be. So we we, we need to again, you, you need to look at the Bible for what it actually claims to be, and, and and but even then, if you're trying to read it, if you're trying to read a book of sixty six individual books that are composed of you know that are comprised of historical narrative uh, law poetry wisdom you know epistle letters and, and prop like you got to understand well what are you reading right here like so for instance proverbs uh, proverbs are not promises they're principles to live by so and it doesn't mean that these proverbs, you know, sometimes it talks about the diligent will always have a, you know, will you know, will will always have a lot. Well, maybe not. Uh, and also sometimes say that the the lazy person will find poverty. Well, sometimes there's a lot of lazy people, but they've been born into money. They ain't poor, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so, yeah. but but they're but they're proverbs. They are principles to live by. Mm-hmm. But if you didn't know how to read the wisdom books, then you might you, you might not even understand it. Or you you might say, well, that's not true. Again, you got to read it for what it is. Mm-hmm. You, you know, uh, when you read about the dragon and all, like. You, again, you have to understand what you're reading. So that that's why it, it, when I'm listening to some of these arguments and I'm like, again, I, I see what you're saying, but we're, we're, we're talking about apples and oranges here. Mm. And then uh, they say, well, a human being wrote it so it doesn't make it truthful, helpful, or, or transformative. Mm. Uh, but, but here's what I would say is, okay, then how has, you know, in, in other areas of our life, 
like just take school, there have been people who have been helped and been transformed by what a teacher has told them about a certain subject that led them into a vocational area that has transformed their life. So uh, I'm like, all right. So just just this idea that well, it's written by humans, so so it has you, you know, so it's not helpful, not transformative. I'm like, well, we don't even believe that in our own life. Yeah. Uh, it's too confusing. Okay, I, yes, it can be very confusing sometimes. Uh, again, I, I read sometimes the prophets, and I'm like, ooh, what is that? You know, what what does that really mean? So that's where I have to do a lot of background study yeah. to understand what was going on at that time in order to correctly interpret yeah. that. Um, some of them say there's no external support. Yeah. Okay. That's not true. Okay. So there's actually lots of external support that just, again, corroborate what was being said in the New Testament about Jesus. So I'm just going to read a, a few of this, a few of these quotes. And this is from a book called Forensic Faith, and it's by J. Warner Wallace. And so he actually talks about that there are some unfriendly pagan accounts from outside the Christian, um, you know, outside the Christian sources that actually provide evidence supporting the claims of Christianity. So you have a Thallus writing from AD uh, 5 to 60, you know, so he explains away uh, the darkness occurring at Jesus's crucifixion. On the whole, you know, on the whole world, there pressed a most fearful darkness and the rocks were rent by an earthquake and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness, Thallus, in the third book of the, his history calls as appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. Now, again, he's writing a, you know, a, a, a historical account, what happened at Jesus' crucifixion. Darkness covered the face of, of the earth. So he's not saying it didn't happen. He's explaining why it happened. But yes, yes. Certainly um, proving that it happened. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, ta- you he's know. He's a historian. He, well, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's, um, yeah, uh, So. So a historian, Sextus Julius Africanus, writing uh, around AD 2021, 20, uh, quotes Thallus's attempt to explain away the darkness. So, so this is someone, you know, quoting from another person yeah. who was kind of there trying to explain it away, right? So Tacitus uh, was a senator under Emperor uh, Vespasian and was a proconsul of Asia. And so he is among the most trusted of his historians. So in his annals written around AD 116, he described emperors, uh, the Emperor Nero's effort to blame Christians for the great fire in Rome. Mm-hmm. So he says, consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most ex- exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty under the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. So again, this this is writing in, you know, AD 56, 117. So there's this circulation that this, I mean, again, this happened. And but again, but they're but they're using it in their own account of what they're particularly dealing with. But they're giving evidence to Pontius Pilate was real. 
that this guy uh, named Christus, of whom all of these people are called Jesus followers, get their name. Like so, and, and then he goes on multiple, multiple outside sources. So, so again, we we can trust even what we have, even from outside sources who aren't even Christian. Yeah, 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 and I. Th- I think the key here is there is a reliability of scriptures that um, it will hold up under scrutiny, and um, and there are there are many that try to discredit it, but just because they, you know, there there are some that try to discredit it doesn't mean um, that they are doing so in good faith. Doesn't mean their arguments are even yeah. logical. Um, and, and I think sometimes w- w- without us even knowing, I mean, it, w- we can get intimidated. By this, and we would just encourage you if you yeah. have this, if you have these questions, if you have any sort of desire, just just dig into it. Let us help you dig into yeah. some of these claims because yeah. you will you will find and you will really be transformed by the reliability. Yeah. Well, I um, I was listening to Jordan Peterson because he's a fascinating individual, and 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 he's a uh, I mean, kind of a hot topic, hot commodity right now, but he actually believes that the Bible is true. And one, one of the things that he said, and I thought it was a very fascinating argument, but he talked about fundamentals. He said, the more ideas are dependent on one given idea, the more that one idea becomes fundamental. And he's actually being intellectually honest that when you look at Western civilization, mm-hmm. That you can actually, tr- you, you can, act- and this is part of that whole source thing. Um, and actually, I actually use that, and I, I actually use that idea that he had to illustrate my whole point about you can look at a current state and you can trace it yeah. back to the source. Yeah. But, um, but what he's saying is, is that Western civilization, that if you look at how Western civilization really came about, it came about through this one source. This one source became the actual fundamental of all fundamentals that brought about Western civilization. Mm. And so it's fascinating that, yeah, you, I mean, you, you look at what the Bible has even been able to bring about. Like, where do you really get the concept of laws? Like, sure, there was Hammurabi's code of ethics, but, uh, you know, and they uncovered that. But th- this idea of laws that govern, uh, what, you, you know, and so I, here's another thing that, I, you, you know, and, and for those who don't believe that the Bible is reliable, and th- this is where, okay, here's where a good conversation could even happen. All right, so I, you don't believe that the Bible is reliable. What do you see as reliable and what framework do you operate from for your life? Like, so what is morality? Is there a thing of morality? And if they go, well, yeah, moral. Okay, how do you know that? Where? Is it a trustworthy source? Because now, you you know, you've you've got to point to a trustworthy source. And so if, let's say they point to a book that's written in the last 200, 300 years, okay? Okay, what makes that true, though? What makes what they're saying truth? Because they're just a person writing. So, so now, if you're going to put now, if you're going to say the onus is on us to say, well, the Bible is reliable, we, we have a lot of, again, we have a lot of evidence that points to the reliability of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you don't, if you don't believe that, 
Okay, what do you believe in and where is your source of reliable truth? Mm. And I promise you the onus is going to be on them because they're going to find a huge problem of what makes them true versus not. Now, here's something that I came up with too. Okay. Uh, follow me here. This may be this may this may fall flat on its face this though. This is for extra take extra take. This right? is extra takes. All right, let's go. All right, so I'm reading a book called Outlive. Yeah. And it's the science and art of longevity. Yeah. So in this chapter that I'm reading about nutrition, he talks about 40,000 diet books on Amazon. Oh. There are 40,000 diet books on Amazon, and they all don't agree. Okay? <laughs> yeah. No. They, they contradict e- each other, they right? They contradict yeah. one another. So, so let's see if you, we can follow me now. So, so bear with me, all right? So this is going to be an argument, and I'm trying out for extra takes, okay? okay? We're, we're an hour in. I'm, I'm ready. I yeah, all right. So right 40,000 diet books on Amazon. Like, so what, what is the best diet? How do you become healthy? How, all of that stuff, right? So take those 40,000 diet books on Amazon. Let's say we grab some dietitian experts that's going to comb through mm-hmm. all 40,000 books on Amazon. And after they comb through all of these books, you know, charting out what they argue for is the most is the healthiest thing that you can do, the healthiest diet. Again, because they all because his you know his point is all of them cannot be right. Mm-hmm. So, but but after you you scrutinize these forty thousand books, now you have what their major tenets are of being healthy. Now you start to cross examine all of these various you, you know data points that we have from forty thousand different authors on diets. What you can actually do is when you put it together, you can actually give a synopsis of what is actually true across all 40,000 books that are common beliefs Mm. that are held. And when you do that, it's true. Mm. Okay? Okay. So, because this is where another thing that I, um, I've always, you know, maybe goes, you know, to people who say, well, the Bible is not reliable because, uh, you, you know, other people say things that are true. I would say that all truth is God's truth, even if it's not found in the book of truth. Right. Okay. Yeah. So what I would say then now is that, and that's why I love cultural engagement. So take Hamilton, the yeah. series that we just did. Yeah. So when you look at just Hamilton and Burr, and you even just look at Hamilton's life, there are a lot of lessons of life that we can learn mm-hmm. that are true. Because we can look at a whole nother case study of three, 5,000 people that have, that we actually have uh, accounts or, or that we have access to their stories. Mm-hmm. And we can probably figure, you know, we, again, we can probably find a lot of the commonalities within their life that we see with Hamilton. Hamilton's not alone. So all I'm saying here is the same thing that we could do with these 40,000 diet books is, again, they all can't be true, but what we can extrapolate from them are true points about nutrition and health. Mm-hmm. And those can be true. Mm. So, and that's where I love what Peterson is saying is that you have this one source of truth that that the entire Western civilization has been built upon. And yes, there, there are a lot of books out there 
And, and when we, let's just say we take 40,000, you know, let's just say we take 40,000 books on leadership and leading well. And again, they all can't necessarily be right, but let's look at them and go, okay, uh, let's extrapolate all of the commonalities that they have. Mm-hmm. Okay, then we're going to take that is true. Mm-hmm. Okay, what does the Bible teach oh, yeah. uh, about organization, yeah. about structure, about like, and I promise you what you're going to find is that this is the source of truth mm-hmm. that that emanates from from every corner of our life that we might be and again go you know you can go through that that list that I you know I had order harmony structure peace love beauty health flourishing life and so that's not to say that 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 human writers whether they're writing a blog mm-hmm. whether they're 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 talking via video or they're writing a book that doesn't mean that they can't say things that aren't true they actually can but what we are saying with the Bible is that is the ultimate source of truth and authority. Hmm. And so, I, I mean, I don't know, does that make sense where I was going where, you know, yeah. okay. So I, I was, I almost used that this past weekend. Yeah. But that I'm like, be, I don't, I don't have, a much, so it may have been a little yeah. much, but, but yeah, so Anyways, we can move move on. But oh, yeah. so but what? So here's what I you know, and and one of the things that I did write down, and this is just kind of in my notes. So you have twenty five thousand manuscripts over the course of centuries, which there are textual variants, hundreds and thousands of textual variants. Uh, some you know, some parts o- o- omitted some words, uh, others not. But when you do a comparison analysis of all of them, we are confident that nine, over 99, 99.5% of what we have today was in the original manuscripts. And the 1% or less, or the half a percent that we are unsure of doesn't mess with the overall meaning or major or secondary theological doctrines of the New Testament. So that's where, you know, again, when you're taking all of these manuscripts and then you're you're seeing the commonalities, you're seeing what's not common. All right, so let's just look at the things that aren't common. It doesn't change the meaning of the text. And something we can can overlook, consider when the, the Gutenberg Press came about and how many hundreds of years um, this was, these manuscripts were handwritten. So just consider how many people over hundreds of years, like consider the importance of, I mean, how many of us in our lives have, have even read the entire Bible, right? Yeah. Consider writing it word for word, letter for letter, Yeah. right? Many of them would do not even word for word or sentence for sentence, they do letter for letter right. because of the importance, right? Because of the reverence that they were taking. Um, and, and when you consider that, it is... Um, it's a remarkable feat of, man, as a believer, there's just this sense of awe and appreciation and this sense of um, stewardship, right? There, We are stewarding the Word of God for future generations. We are making sure that it is written down and we are making sure that it is preserved. Um, I know much of this conversation has been about the skepticism and, and, yeah. and, and that's right, but man, when I when I think about that and consider that, as believers, we can be 
grateful and we can be in awe of that. We can. And and, and another way that we can just be in awe, again, I'm giving you a, a lot more right now, but you actually have multiple streams of copying the Bible. So you have the Coptic stream. So that's kind of in present day kind of Egypt. So you have the Coptic a Coptic stream. So that's between the second and fifth century. You have the Syriac stream in the 500s. You have the Greek stream in the second century and beyond. You have the Armenian stream in kind of the fifth century. You have an Ethiopian stream in the fourth century. Eventually, you have the Latin stream. So that's where I'm saying, like, if if you really didn't believe in the reliability of the Bible, then, all right, so take all of these streams, and you can actually figure out, like, you again, you can kind of take all of these streams and see what they... Again, what they copied, all of these, and you can even compare them. Yeah, there's not a change. Yeah, so that that's where it's wow. it's fascinating. Wow. And then, you know, when you take all of the church fathers, you, you know, the early church fathers. So you have church fathers like Ambrose and Jerome, uh, you know, Augustine of Hippo. You have. Pope Gregory uh, the Great, you have Athanasius, uh, Gregory of, um, I can't even pronounce where Gregory was from, but Nassianus or something like that, you know, I don't know, Basil of Caesarea, John Chrysostom, all, you know, they all were present in the first three, four centuries uh, of, of the early church. And then you have uh, church fathers like a Polycarp of Smyrna. You know who Polycarp was? Uh, he was actually a disciple of John who actually began to write commentary on Scripture. You have people like Justin, you know, Martyr, and you have um, Clement of Alexander and Origen. Uh, both of these uh, fathers, they lived between 150 and 215, 185 and 254. These are early early, early church fathers, and they're writing about Scripture. They're, yeah. they're giving commentaries on Scripture. Yeah. So, I mean, again, like, there, there's so many different, like if I would have had even more time, I would have actually developed buckets of really real, you know, reliable information and sources from various big buckets. So you got the church fathers bucket, yeah. you got the streams of copying yeah. bucket, yeah. you have outside source buckets, and then you even have just the textual criticism buckets that sure, yes, there are hundreds and thousands of variations, you know, whether a word was omitted or a word was misspelled, you know, something like that. And when you look at all of the manuscripts that we have under scrutiny. Uh, I'll give you one last one. Okay. So he here's one, one last quote, and this is actually from the biggest skeptic of all. Mm. So the biggest skeptic of all is Bart Ehrman. So Bart Ehrman is a leading New Testament scholar who was a Christian but he denounced the faith after he found out that there were a lot of textual variations and okay. and errors, the way he would put it. Like so, for instance, 
uh, just so that you know, so Bart Ehrman went to Moody Bible Institute. He then went to Princeton University Mm -hmm. and studied under Bruce Metzger, who is a faithful uh, believer, but he is the leading textual scholar, okay? So that was his mentor, and after all of that, he walked away from the faith. But this is what he says in a quote. If Dr. Metzger and I were put in a room and asked to hammer out a a consensus statement on what we think the original text of the New Testament probably looked like, there would be very few points of disagreement, Hmm. maybe one or two dozen places out of many thousands. The position I argue for in misquoting Jesus as a book that he wrote does not actually stand at odds with Professor Metzger's position that the essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. So here is the uh, one of the leading scholars who fell away because of the textual variants that he came across. But what he says, though, is that Even when you put in all of those textual variations, it does not change the essential message of the New Testament. Mm. Wow. So at least he's being intellectually honest. Yeah. But so again, I know we've we've talked a lot about the reliability. So what else we got in our our remaining night time? Because we knew it was gonna be a little bit longer this go round. Yeah, so so I think we talked about uh, scripture well. Let's pivot to um, the second of the TED Talks, which is God and the Trinity. Yeah. Um, so what do we want to talk about? I'll just kind of throw it out to you. I have a couple questions, but um, certainly want um, anything that you have uh, burning to, uh, to share. Is there any big, big ideas or topics that you wanted to clarify or uh, things that you weren't able to cover? Yeah, I mean, not necessarily for, for the talk on, on God. Okay. You know, I, you know, I, I, I will say, like when you, oh, th- there, there was actually, there, there was actually one. L- okay. Let me, uh, and let me share that with you because I actually marked it in my, you know, in my Bible, Be- because you're going to come across passages like this in Ephesians chapter one, but I, I want to kind of give you a little bit more of a practical handle on how the Trinity, even though. It's really, really hard to explain. I did have somebody come up to me and try to explain with the movie, and I'm like, mm, no, <laughs> you know. But uh, and, and then it's funny because somebody had asked me to watch the movie The Shack, and okay. it depicts the Trinity. Uh, no, all right. So I mean, I, you know, I love the uh, the attempt of you know, uh, it got in the house and three. You know, stop it, you, you know. Let's say again, just like it, it's it might be fun, but. But again, I I really want to hold the the mystery of the Trinity too, yeah. B- because I, I I think there is more mystery than there is understanding to the Trinity. However, what is not a mystery mm-hmm. is the role and responsibilities of each person, each God, you know, each Godhead in the in the Trinity. So yeah. So Ephesians one gives a really good example of this. So Paul writes. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So so right now we have, all right, so we got God the Father. He's the one blessing, but he's blessing through his son because the only way he could bless us is to reconcile us to himself. So God the Son, Jesus Christ, had to be the sacrifice that substituted his life for ours in order that we might be reconciled to God so that he could bless us. So this tells us a lot about the Godhead right here is that he wants to bless, but he also has to do it in his holiness, right? And and so because we had rebelled, we had committed treason, so he is a God of justice, but he's also a God of mercy and grace. So he has to punish us, but the only way that he could bless us rather than punish us is by sending his son. So we, we, we see that in the very, you know, kind of first a few verses in Ephesians. But then he goes on um, and we, we, we read... And you also were you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So now we are introduced, particularly in this uh, in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, of the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? Well, he acts as our deposit and our guarantee for something that is coming down the road. And so, and, and, and part of that guarantee is he's going to keep us. So he, you know, he, he's going to make sure now that he indwells us, He's going to guide us. He's going to instruct us. He's going to correct us. He's going to bring conviction on us because he has been the, you know, he has been given the the responsibility. So God, the Holy Spirit has been given the responsibility to be our advocate, to be our deposit, Mm -hmm. to be our guarantee of the inheritance to come. And thus he's going to do everything Mm -hmm. in, so everything in his power, which he is omnipotent Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. he's God to keep us. That's the reason why, again, we believe that you cannot lose your like. A a a true and here's again and we'll, and we'll I'll go over this in uh, in our uh, series Iron Faith and you you know but a true believer like someone who has truly mm-hmm. professed their faith in Jesus who have repented of their sin like you're not you're not going to walk away from the faith so like you can take Bart Ehrman. He, you know, obviously at, at some point in his life he was a professing Christian, but then. He got into the the realm of 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 of, of I, I say uh, a vocation where he's now looking at all of these things having to do with the Bible, and then he be he he basically fell away. Yeah. He he denounced the faith. So what we would say is that he he never truly trusted. Mm-hmm. So sure he knew about, mm-hmm. but he did not know. And so, but again, what we see in Ephesians is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three distinct persons as God. Hmm. So, um, and again, there are other places that we could go in that. Like I could show you Acts chapter 1, where, again, you, you see... the You see all members of the Trinity, so but one God, three persons. And I think... Um... I like what you said about 
we want to hold the um, we want to hold the mystery of God in tension. You know, you said finite people cannot fully understand an infinite God. Yeah. You know, in our culture, that's really not good enough. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, well, we don't, what do we do with that? We don't like to hear that. Um, what do you mean we can't understand an infinite God? Yeah. And, you, and we see that playing out in our culture. You know, we just, so even when you say, hey, I've stopped trying to describe it. Yeah. What do you mean you stopped t- trying to describe it? Right, right. This is an important concept that we have to understand, yeah. right? So and that's where I, I don't want to, you know, that's part of where I'm like, I don't want to try to describe and illustrate uh, uh, really the, the mystery of the Trinity. But what I do want to do is I want to expound and explain the scriptures that depict the Trinity. Because those are clear. Because those are clear. Because yeah. ultimately, and that's why when you look at, again, what we laid out this past weekend, God, God the Father, yeah. he is the one to be glorified and praised. Yeah. Now, when we praise and glorify the Son, the Father is glorified. But we have to realize that Jesus came to die on a cross, mm. was buried in rose from the dead so that we might be reconciled to God so that we might bring the Father glory. All throughout Jesus' ministry, what is he constantly doing? He's pointing back to the Father, back to the Father, back to the Father. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you an advocate. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. That's why in Acts 1, he's like, and power will come upon you, you you know, and, and when the Spirit falls and you will be my witnesses. So you cannot witness without, you cannot be a credible witness, nor can you even be a witness apart from the power of the Spirit of God living and moving inside of you. Mm-hmm. And again, so so you have you so so you have these again, these responsibilities that each person of the Trinity has. And that's what becomes so fascinating for me when when you look at one God in three persons, so I can explain it. So, one of the one of the things that I actually try to do each week is I I pray to one God, but I specifically pray that God would you be glorified, Jesus will you be the center, uh, Spirit will you give us eyes to you know see and hear? like because what I'm doing is I'm praying to one God, but I'm praying to the responsibility that each person in the Trinity has. In which that enhanced my prayer life years ago. Like, Father, I want to bring you glory. Father, thank you so much for making me. Jesus, our King, thank you. Like, so again, I, and this, and it has been a mystery because early, you know, early on, uh, and, and even even uh, I, I believe it's Muslims. They think that we have three different gods. No, it's, we have one God, three persons. It's a, it's, it's a yeah. mystery. It's it really a is a block. mystery. Yeah, it's a stumbling block. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the monotheism. They don't they don't see us with one God. Yeah. Right? So the Trinity is a, is a real challenge to overcome when you're talking with Muslims. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And I, another one that I would just stress too is the names of God. Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, I want to talk about the names of God, okay. and then we'll finish with um, with the summary. Because okay. I think you did a great job of uh, of laying out the summary, so I think that'll be a great way for us to wrap up. So let's talk. All about right, the names all right. Of God. So what you got there? Nope, that's oh, that's me. Right. You want me? You want me to go? Uh, I'm teeing uh, you up <laughs> of the of the names of God. I, you know, I think the biggest thing that that stuck out to me in terms of the name, you know, the names of God, and this has been something that. Again, for years, I've 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 just been overwhelmed by 
is that when you do study Western civilization, or well, not Western civilization, I mean just all of civilization, so I say Western, but I mean even Western today, we don't like to think of ourselves as having multiple gods, but so let's dig yeah. a little bit deeper in there. Yeah, we, we do. Uh, we have the God of money, so we think money can do something for us. Uh, but we also have had people who have had lots of money that get to the point where they're like, well, money's not all it's cracked up to be. But they have pursued the God of money. They pursued the God of success and popularity. I mean, Jim Carrey talks about that even recently. I've read a lot of things about him recently of where um, it seems like God's done something in his life. We'll, we'll, you, we'll, we'll see. Jim Carrey? Jim Carrey. Really? Yes. Okay. And then you have uh, people that will that will call on the god of medicine. Yeah, you know, I, I, I you, you know, they'll call on the god of science. Now, again, they're not going to call them gods, but but they, but these are now tangible things that the history of the world has called upon. Mm-hmm. I mean, so when you look at when you look at the gods of of the Egyptians, when you look at uh, the gods of the Canaanites, and when you again, you you have all of these gods that, you know, the Greek gods, the Roman gods, yeah. they all serve a particular function. Yeah. And so I, I didn't mention this in the eleven o'clock. You got uh, the, you know, I say Nike, but maybe it was the god Nike or something like that. But yeah. it's N I K E. Yeah. But but anyways, so if you have anything Nike, that is basically a Greek word for the goddess of victory. So again, you you had the history of civilization. They would sacrifice and call out to gods, particularly for a situation or circumstance. They were going through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at the names of God, these are how God, again, one God has revealed himself mm-hmm. throughout history. Mm-hmm. So we don't have, you know, so we don't have this, this cosmic uh, divine vending machine where, okay, man, we, you know, we, we, we need to pray for this famine, you know, so that crops can grow. So we need to, what, what God is that? What, what, what's yeah. the, you know, so E5, the God of, you know, no, no, yeah. we don't have to do that. We can go to one God. Yeah. We don't have family gods. We don't have regional gods. We don't have national gods, right? Yeah. Where we escalate in value as the, the famine grows more yeah. complex. We have to pray to the national God. He covers it all. Yeah. And even you think, because you mentioned regional or, or national gods, right? Because, again, that that was what what history, what, you know, the ancient world, that's what they had. They had regional, kind of, na- you know, kind of a national, uh, you know, gods. And I, just, just so that, you know, America has, has national gods. Oh, really? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, you again, everything I just named, like, you know, fame, materialism, success, you know, position, the American dream, oh, yeah. you, you know. But but here's the thing. Um, if you go in other parts of the world, like third world country, uh, they don't have those gods. They're perfectly content in their own, you know. Uh, I mean, they really are, like— that's what has blown away some people when they go over to these third world countries, people who are in extreme poverty, that, you know, 
they're not kind of, you know, sitting there waddling in their extreme poverty because they don't have multiple clothes or multiple, you know, pairs of shoes that they, you know, like they, but they are extremely content, but they have other gods. I mean, you know, you look at in Africa, animism, you know, plays a huge role. So, so they do have, so that's where I'm saying America has some national, you know, and this is where more Western civilization, you know, has more of their kind of nationalistic gods. But, but, but again, when you look at we serve one God. Yeah. And the way you really drove that home was you said, we have one God for every season, season, every circumstance in all of life. And Jesus Christ, God in the flesh represents all of those. Yes, he does. Amen. Yeah. So as we wrap up, you... um, And And he actually lived and moved on planet earth. And again, we have records outside of even the the biblical corpus yeah. that that claim that yeah. there was a man yeah. by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and and so that that's what makes it even more powerful and potent. Mm. And uh, I can't wait. So for all of those who are listening, you will hear it for the very first time right now. Uh, we will be taking a trip. Next April, so it will be the first of it will be the first of April. I want to say April third or fourth. So more information will like actually we're producing it right now. But I just got this last week, so it's like April third or fourth through the seventeenth. We are doing an Exodus to Promised Land trip. It will be led by humbly me and Pastor Gus, and so we'll have uh, plenty of spaces for you. If you want to join us, but like I said, we will be pointing, we will be uh, producing, publishing more information on that in the coming days of how much it will cost and all of that. But the reason why I say that is because I cannot wait to go over to, because this will be my first time going to the promised land, knowing that our king walked planet earth in bodily form and so it just it just overwhelms me. Mm. So as you um, as we wrap up, I'll wrap up with um, with the summary you gave us. Okay, which was when you follow God's revealed word that points to His incarnate word, who through His death and resurrection deposits His indwelling Spirit, that you might obey the word, you inevitably will image the Triune God and thus bring glory. Um, bring God the Father glory. I think that does such a great job of um, of showing the importance of the Trinity, obviously the importance of, of the Scripture, um, God's revealed Word that points to His incarnate Word, Jesus, um, through His death and resurrection, right? Deposits yeah. His indwelling of the Spirit. So you really get to see the working of how the Scriptures work together with the Trinity, mm. um, and then, then our our purpose, right? Yeah. That we will image the Triune God and bring Him glory. Amen. Amen. Well, Northland family and friends, know that you are deeply, deeply loved. We're grateful for you. Thanks so much for tuning in for this episode of Extra Takes, which was just a little bit longer than most. A little bit. But it will be all right. And so blessings on you. We will see you prayerfully this weekend. Blessings. Thanks for listening to Extra Takes. 
Be sure to follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts so you won't miss a single episode.